Thank you, Dave. Thank you, John. Thank you for singing. I want to invite you now to turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. We begin a new chapter in our study in the book of Hebrews this evening. Now, if you recall last week, uh, we finished the message with Hebrews chapter 6, verse 20, speaking of Jesus Christ, who is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And so tonight, I want to address the question, who is this mysterious character in the Bible named Melchizedek? He's mentioned in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 6, speaking of Christ uh, as a priest after the order of Melchizedek, excuse me, and that's actually a quotation from Psalm 110, which we'll look at in a bit. He's mentioned again in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 20, as I mentioned a moment ago, which is the lead-in to chapter 7. I've got something in my, <clears throat> my throat, and I'm going to be doing that for a bit. Sorry. Yeah, there is water here, but I don't know without helping out. We'll find out. Probably make me choke. We shall see. Anyhow, so the question is, <clears throat> what is it supposed to mean that Jesus was a high priest after the order of Melchizedek? Who was this mysterious character named Melchizedek, and what is that priestly order of Melchizedek. Well, that's why we have Hebrews chapter 7. The author of the book of Hebrews devotes this chapter to that very question. So, I'm going to read this evening just the first 10 verses. The entire chapter really addresses the issue of Melchizedek and how he points us to Christ. But for our our purposes tonight, we're going to look at verses 1 through 10. So, please follow as I read. Hebrews 7 verse 1, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also the king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever." Seeing how great this, or see how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers. Though these are also descended from Abraham, but this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him, that is, met Abraham. So, who was Melchizedek? We, uh, We don't want to lose sight of this important fact that Hebrews is about Jesus, It's to show us the supremacy of the Lord Jesus. But Melchizedek is employed by the writer of Hebrews to make that very case. So three uh, main points that I want to draw your attention to in this text. First of all, we're going to look at the history of Melchizedek in the first three verses. And then the greatness of Melchizedek in the remaining verses. But then we're going to address a third question or a third issue, and that is, was Melchizedek a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ? And you'll see what I mean by that when I get to that. <clears throat> but again, keep in mind at all times that Hebrews is about Jesus. 
Whatever we may learn about angels or Moses or about Levitical priests or even about Melchizedek, the entire epistle is about the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the author of Hebrews employs the account of Melchizedek and the quotation of him in Psalm 110 in order to strengthen his case. So let's first of all look at the history of this man named Melchizedek. The background is in Genesis chapter 14. Uh, You recall that there was a a dispute that arose between Abraham and his nephew Lot, and it was really between Abraham's herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen. Uh, They had massive, they had large numbers of of livestock, and the herdsmen were getting in arguments, and so Abraham said, you know what, let's just go our separate ways. And you get first pick. So Lot picked the very fertile land around Sodom and Gomorrah, and Lot made his home in the city of Sodom. Now, in those days, each city was like an independent city-state. They weren't numerous cities in one big country. Uh, in, In Babylon, you had Nebuchadnezzar ruling over a large empire. Well, here we had, uh, here we have independent city-states, and each little city-state would have their own king. So, there was the king of Sodom, and there was a king of Gomorrah, and there were numerous kings of these city-states. Well, four kings had banded together, and they had begun to oppress uh, other regions and other cities in that part of the country or part of the world. And eventually, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah's kings said, we don't like it anymore, and they pushed back. And at that point, they were attacked, and they were defeated. And these four kings and their invading armies carried off the plunder carried off the people. And so Lot and everything he owned and everyone in his entourage were taken captive by these four kings. Now, Abraham is not going to let Lot live in captivity. He is a man of action, and he said, I need to do something about this. So he had, uh, he had a small army of trained men, and he said, we're going to go and we're going to rescue Lot. And so they attacked They invaded the invaders. They defeated them and uh, brought Lot home safely along with all of the plunder that had been taken. And that's the background that uh, for Genesis chapter 14. I'm going to read verses 17 through 20. Um, And if you want to turn there, you're uh, welcome to do so. Genesis 14, verses 17 uh, through 20. We read, after his return, and that is after Abraham's, Abram's, returned from the defeat of Chedorlaomer, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, went out to meet with him, with Abram, at the valley of Shava, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham, or Abram, gave him a tenth of everything. Now, this is Genesis chapter 14, uh, some time before Abram uh, became Abraham, the father of many nations, before that covenant was established. But here we learn several things about Melchizedek. First of all, he was the king of Salem. Now, many uh, in, uh, Bible interpreters assume that means Jerusalem, and that may well be. Uh, we can't really be certain. But, but, that city-state of Jerusalem is certainly possible. But Melchizedek was not among the kings that were attacked. He was not in the party that, that went after Lot and the others. 
uh, he just seems to appear very mysteriously when Abraham comes back from his victory. The second thing we see here is that Melchizedek is declared to be a priest of God Most High. Now, this is interesting. This is 600 years before Moses received the law of God. And you remember uh, Pastor Mark this morning preaching from Exodus 34, how God reestablished the covenant, which included rewriting the law on the tablets, because when the children of Israel had broken the covenant, Moses threw the, the tablets down, and they were shattered. So, in, Mo, in Moses' time, he wrote down the law, including the ceremonial law, which established the Levitical priesthood, or the Aaronic priesthood. But that was about 600 years after Abram. And here we have Melchizedek, who is a priest of God Most High, before the Aaronic priesthood or the Levitical priesthood was ever established. In fact, he was a priest of of God Most High before there was ever a chosen people of God. Abram had not yet become the father of many nations. He was promised to be, but he didn't have any children yet. There was no Jewish nation. So he was outside of the household of Israel, yet he was the king of Salem and a priest of God Most High. And before the ceremonial law had been established, before the priestly service had been defined, here we find Melchizedek serving as a priest. Now, the false gods, the idols, had their priests too. But Melchizedek was a priest of the one true God. And we don't, it's a mysterious, uh, mysterious character. We don't know what that looked like or what his life was like. We don't know anything about him other than what we read right here and in Genesis chapter 14. But he comes out and he meets Abraham and he performs this priestly service. He gives him bread and wine and he blessed Abraham, pronounces a blessing on Abraham and blesses God for giving Abraham a victory. Well, the third thing we see here is that he does give Abram bread and wine uh, to refresh Abraham, but that seems to be part of his priestly function. Now, it struck me, and it may be because we had communion this morning, that in the Lord's table we serve bread and wine, or, or, or grape juice in our case, the cup symbolizing the, the bread and body, or the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus. None of the commentators make that parallel, so that's all I'm going to say about it, all right? Uh, it's not, I, don't, I don't think it's foreshadowing uh, the Lord's uh, table or, or communion, but uh, I just found that to be interesting. <clears throat> but the fourth thing, and this is very important, this is a big part of the argument that we find here in the text, is that Abram gave Melchizedek one-tenth of the spoils. Now, here's this man, he comes out and meets Abram. Abram seemed to be familiar, he seemed to know who he was. Melchizedek comes out, offers him bread and wine, pronounces a blessing, and Abram gives him, right on the spot, one-tenth of all the plunder that he had brought with him. Now, that's the last time Melchizedek is mentioned in the book of Genesis during the time of the patriarchs. He's only mentioned one other time in Psalm 110 and verse 4, which we'll read in just a moment. But that's really all we know about this man. So, uh, turn with me now to Psalm 110, if you would. Psalm 110, we're going to read the first four verses. And when I was preparing, before I had looked at the text, I I wonder if this was a psalm of Moses, because Moses wrote some psalms. 
But no, it was a long time after Moses, the Psalm of David. And I think, again, that has some significance that David would be mentioning Melchizedek. So, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Clearly, it's a messianic psalm. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I find that incredibly curious, that here is this messianic psalm declaring the victorious rule and reign of Messiah, and then we're told, and he will be a priest, but not like any other priest. He is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, and yet the Old Testament contains virtually nothing about a Melchizedekian priestly order. I find that very interesting. So here we have this messianic psalm, uh, and, and many of the commentators point out that this verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at, uh, uh, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Many commentators point out this verse is cited, referred to more than any other verse in the Old Testament. I, again, I find that very interesting. Uh, and the Jewish readers of, of, of the first century would read that, and they rejoice to think of Messiah. And, and when Jewish Christians would read that, they certainly would recognize the Lord Jesus is our ruling, reigning Messiah. But there's nothing in the Old Testament that talks about Melchizedek. And so I'm sure that for a Jewish reader, you're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek would, would catch him by surprise. Uh, what does that even mean? They knew all about the Levitical priesthood. They knew about going to the temple and sacrifices and going into the, through the Holy of Holies and the, uh, and, the, and the Ark of the Covenant on the Day of Atonement. They knew those. But what is this priestly order of Melchizedek, this mysterious man who came out and we see him blessing Abram and blessing God? We don't get a whole lot of help from Genesis, and, and really, David doesn't say anything else about it. So, we have this unique combination of a reigning king and a unique priesthood united in one man because no king in Israel was allowed to function as a priest. That's what got King Saul in trouble when he made sacrifices rather than waiting for Samuel the priest. No priest was allowed to serve as king, and yet the Messiah would unite prophet, priest, and king all in one person. But the writer of Hebrews refers to Melchizedek to show us something of this priesthood. And he's a bit of a mystery. But here in chapter 7 of Hebrews, he begins to unpack this mystery and tries to demystify Melchizedek for us. He says in verses 1 to 3 that he's the king of Salem, uh, the priest of God most high, which we read in Genesis 14. He met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned the tenth part of everything. All of that is in Genesis 14. But then he says he is first. By translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God. He continues a priest forever. And you might say, well, I get verses 1 and 2, that's straight out of Genesis 14, but where does verse 3 come from? 
and there's a lot of uh, conjecture. Was there an oral tradition about Melchizedek that had been passed down? I don't know. I mean, I know there was, but the key is, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this is what the writer wrote, and we can take it uh, with absolute certainty that it's true. That whatever he writes is, is because of the Spirit's inspiration, we know it's true. So he, this, this statement, you are a priest forever, and again, of course, it's mentioned in Psalm 110. So this basic account that Melchizedek is the king of Salem. He comes out, he meets Abraham after the slaughter of the kings, and he blesses him, and he receives a tithe from Abraham. But then we dive a little bit deeper. We find out that the translation of his name is king of righteousness. And so here we have Melchizedek. Who does that make you think of? The king of righteousness. Points forward, of course, to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our righteous king. He is the king of of righteousness. His name, King of Salem, or his title, the King of Salem. Does that mean he's the king in the city of Jerusalem or the city state of Salem? Quite possibly. But then the writer of Hebrews says, and that Salem means King of Peace. Well, who is the Prince of Peace? But of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. But then verse 3 says he's without father or mother or genealogy. Now, that's a very curious statement. If you go back and you read the book of Genesis, and really if you read uh, uh, Numbers and First and Second Chronicles and Kings, you're going to see all these genealogies. Every key figure in the, among the people of God in the Old Testament, you, you know who their father was. You know who their descendants were. You know when they were born in most cases, and you know when they died. There's, there's this very careful attention to their genealogy or their pedigree as they're descended from Abraham. And then you get to Luke chapter uh, 1 and Matthew, uh, and we read the genealogy of the Lord Jesus. And again, we see that very careful attention. And yet with Melchizedek, it doesn't say anything about who his father or his mother were. It says nothing of his birth, nothing of his death. He is a mysterious individual who just seems to appear on the scene carry out this one function, and then he's never heard from again. That's, uh, that's this mysterious nature of Melchizedek. But then it tells us, he tells us that he is resembling the Son of God. He continues as a priest forever. One author uh, in, uh, emphasizes, is he does not say he is, he does not say that Jesus resembles Melchizedek. He says Melchizedek resembles Jesus, and that's an important distinction. See, the Old Testament, the Levitical priest, began his, he, he was born into the tribe of Levi. Only Levites could be priests. And he would begin his priestly service at the age of 30, and he would have to retire from his priestly service at the age of 50. So he may live on after that, but he's no longer carrying out his priestly duty. It has a definite beginning and a definite end. <clears throat> well, there's no such limitation placed upon Melchizedek. There's no genealogy. There's no beginning. There's no end. And it says, literally, it says, he is a priest forever. It indicates that he continues perpetually as a priest. Now, the question is, is that figurative language? Or is literally, there's this Melchizedek character who is eternally a priest. 
I, I, I agree with those who say it's figurative. Simon Kistemaker in his commentary says, as a type of Christ, Melchizedek lives on scripturally, although not historically. And I agree with that. I think he's right. I think there's, uh, there, there's figurative speaking here. Uh, the figurative allusion of Melchizedek points to a literal reality about the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the, the history behind the mystery, as it were, of this Old Testament figure named Melchizedek. But let's talk for a moment about the greatness of Melchizedek, because that's really the focus of our text this evening. Verse 4, see how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. The point of the book of Hebrews, remember, is to establish for us the superiority of Jesus Christ, or we might say the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the writer of Hebrews employs this character Melchizedek, and the statement in Psalm 110 that Jesus, the Messiah, would be a priest according to the order of Melchizedek to emphasize the greatness of the Lord Jesus. But in verses 1 through 10, he does not mention Jesus other than to say that Melchizedek resembles the Son of God. But that's all he says about Jesus in these verses. He is focusing on Melchizedek, but his argument is the greatness of Melchizedek. He says, first of all, Melchizedek is superior to Abraham. Abraham was the patriarch. He was the father of the Jewish nation. He was the patriarch of the line of, 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 of Israel leading up to Messiah. In John chapter 8, those who opposed Jesus argued with him and said, we have Abraham as our father. They were, they were trying to dig at Jesus because uh, it was understood by some that uh, Joseph was not actually his biological father. And so they're suggesting that Jesus was not legitimate. We have Abraham as our father. And, and Jesus responds, you know, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He, he saw it and rejoiced. And they're like, what are you talking about? And he said, they said, have you seen Abraham? And he said, before Abraham was born, I am. And that claim just about got him stoned to death. Because they realized he was claiming to be God. But he was appealing to this historical character, this great giant in the history of Israel, the patriarch Abraham. The greatest man in their eyes was Abraham. And Jesus said, before he was even born, I am. But the point where we find here in this text is that Melchizedek is viewed to be greater than Abraham. Abraham comes home from this great victory, and he gives tithes to Melchizedek. He gives him one-tenth of the spoils, and Melchizedek received that tithe, which is a powerful indicator that Abraham considered Melchizedek to be his superior, a greater individual than he himself was. In verse 5, we read, Those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also have descended from Abraham. When the law was established, when the nation of Israel was established, as they were crossing the, the, the wilderness and going into the promised land, they had to organize as a nation. How are we going to do this? Well, the the land was apportioned out by tribes. There were twelve tribes of Israel. Now, the tribe of Joseph was divided between Ephraim, his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. 
So if you look at a map of the 12 tribes, you're going to see 12 areas assigned to 12 different tribes within the nation of Israel. But two names you won't see. One is Joseph because his sons were divided. His, the two sons of his, tribes of his sons were divided. And you won't see the name Levi because the Levites did not receive any land. They received the assignment to be responsible for the temple service. And so because they had no land from which to earn a living, they were to receive tithes from all the other Israelites. And so the tithes came into the temple to support the temple and to support the temple servants, that is, the Levites. That was the law. The Levites were to receive and to live on the tithe. Now, there's a contrast here that is drawn in verses 4 and 5. The contrast, first of all, is the Levitical priests are more respected than the rest of the Israelites. How do we know that? Because the rest of the Israelites are giving them a tithe. It's like paying tribute to them. But then also we find that Abraham, the patriarch, is considered to be greater than all of his descendants. He's the patriarch. He's the one through whom Israel came to be. So it stands to, he's the one who received the covenant promise. So it stands to reason that he would be considered the greatest in Israel and the most highly respected. And so we have the, the Levites are greater than the rest of Israel. And Abraham is superior over all of Israel, including the Levites. And then the third contrast, we have Melchizedek is superior to Abraham, which means Melchizedek is also superior to the Levites and to the rest of Israel. And his priesthood is superior to that of the Levitical priests. And he says in verse 7, it's beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. And so when Melchizedek comes and pronounces a blessing on Abraham, again, that's an indication that he was the superior, Abraham was the inferior. Humorous story. Uh, Many years ago when we were in China to adopt our daughter Haley, uh, there were six families in our group, and one of them was a very, very devout Catholic from Brooklyn. His name is Danny. Danny and, I, Danny and I had lots of great conversations. He was grieved at the, at, the, at the lack of zeal he saw among so much Catholicism in his day. But we talked about the gospel a lot. And on that Sunday, we had a worship service in my room, and every family was represented. At least one of every couple was there, and Danny was there. And when we finished... And everyone was leaving. I was standing at the door, and Danny walked by and said, Would you bless me, Father? What? Would you bless me, Father? The Lord bless you. Now you bless me. <laughs> His eyes got wide, like, What are you saying? I'm saying the priesthood of the believer is true. The pastor is not superior to the people because we are all a kingdom of priests. Well, Melchizedek was superior to Abraham, and he blessed Abraham. When the Lord uh, appears to Abraham, in, in Genesis chapter 17, he, he establishes this covenant of circumcision. And when he does, he appears as the angel of the Lord which is the pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so uh, that addresses that question, is he a Christophany? We're going to look at that in just a moment. 
but I, I want to jump back because I did skip something. Um, Melchizedek does something that no Levitical priest could ever do. He fulfilled the kingly role, king of Salem, and the priestly role. And again, I said earlier, that, that was forbidden. The priest couldn't be a king, and the king couldn't be a priest. And so in that way, he points very clearly and very compellingly to Messiah. But then the, the writer says something very interesting here toward the end of the text. He says that the Levitical priests, even the Levitical priests paid a tithe to Melchizedek. The reasoning in his argument is very rabbinic. It, strike, it may strike you and me as unusual. Abraham giving a tithe to, Mel, to Melchizedek, therefore his descendants who are in essence in his loins, they are paying a tithe to Abraham, or excuse me, to Melchizedek. Well, that was rabbinical reasoning. When the ancestor does something, his progeny, his descendants, are regarded as, uh, by extension, doing the same thing. So here we have Abraham paying the tithes to Melchizedek, pointing to the superiority of Melchizedek, and now we have, because Levi uh, was descended from Abraham, Abraham, and the Levites, Levitical priests, were descended from them, therefore they are paying tithes to Melchizedek, establishing again his superiority. Superiority, And then to further establish this superiority of Melchizedek, and you may say, you're being a, a dead horse here, I know. But in verse 3 it says, Melchizedek having neither beginning of days nor end of life, resembling the Son of God, he continues forever. And then in verse 8, this contrast between the Levitical priest who died and Melchizedek who it says continues forever. He lives on, at least metaphorically. So there's only one conclusion that's possible, and that is that Melchizedek is indeed superior to the Levitical priests, and his priesthood, the priesthood of which Jesus was a priest, is superior to the Levitical priesthood. And that's critically, critically important. And we'll explain that. We'll unpack that more next week. But so let's go back to this question. This is our third point. Was he a pre-incarnate appearance of Messiah? Now, it's interesting that Matt Foreman would be here uh, this Sunday, uh, last Wednesday, I was talking with Bob Gonzalez, and he said, Matt and Doug Van Dorn, who wrote a book called The Angel of the Lord, have a section where they ask the question, was Melchizedek a pre-incarnate uh, appearance of Christ? Now, throughout the Old Testament, we have the angel of the Lord appearing over and over. It says the angel of Yahweh. And uh, the, the thesis of that book is that uh, the angel of Yahweh is, in fact, not just a theophany, a pre uh, 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 an, uh, an Old Testament appearance of God, but it's actually a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. And I agree with that thesis. I believe that that's true. And so, as I said, in Genesis 17, when the angel appears to Abraham and reestablishes the covenant of circumcision, I believe that angel of the Lord is indeed none other than a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Genesis chapter 22, when uh, when uh, Abraham is in obedience to the Lord, ready to plunge the knife in Isaac. The angel of the Lord appears and said, Abraham, stop, don't do that. Again, I believe that is none other than the Lord Jesus. Now, there are some who have suggested that Melchizedek was a Christophany. And in Matt's book, uh, they address that in an appendix. And it's interesting because Doug Van Dorn, one of the authors, leans toward, yeah, I think he could have been. Matt leans toward, nah, I think he probably wasn't. And they, they each give some, some, uh, some uh, reasons why. And I just briefly want to explain those. I think it's helpful. The reasons Doug th- says he could have been, 
Messiah, could have been Christ. Number one, Psalm 110 is about Messiah. And so we have this link between the Messiah as king and Messiah as priest. And so it suggests, because of Melchizedek's name being there, maybe it's referring to him. Now, more compellingly, both in Psalm 110 and here in Hebrews, we find that Melchizedek continues as a priest forever. That can't be said about a human priest. Even if Melchizedek was not of the tribe of Levi, even though he was not an Aaronic priesthood, if he was merely human, he's going to die. So to say that he continues as a priest forever could possibly indicate that we're talking about the Messiah. Now again, I kind of lean toward that's a figurative statement uh, rather than a literal statement, but uh, it could indicate um, that he is a is Christophany. In verse 8, it, tes- it says it was testified that Melchizedek lives. And again, the Levites were called in that verse mortal men. So you got mortal men and you got one who's not mortal, who lives. If he's immortal, he's supernatural. If he's supernatural, maybe he's the Messiah. Add to that verses 15 and 16. Look with me at Hebrews 7, verse 15. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. That is Christ. Who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent. See, Melchizedek doesn't become a priest because he was descended from the right tribe or the right family. But by the power of an indestructible life. Now, if he has an indestructible life, that means he's supernatural. If he's supernatural, could we be talking about Messiah? And again, his very name, king of righteousness, king of peace, that could suggest that, in fact, Melchizedek was a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. But Matt gives us reasons why he thinks that's probably not the case. Uh, First of all, the author of Hebrews could have made that claim. He made a lot of very clear claims, and he didn't make that one. And that in itself, I think, is significant. But secondly, he tells us in verse 3 that Melchizedek resembles the Son of God. He doesn't say that he is the Son of God, and I think that's a distinction that's quite important. So I'm convinced Melchizedek is what's called a type of Christ. Now, if you're not familiar with the concept of Old Testament types, that might be a person, it might be a place, it might be an event. Uh, that points to a New Testament reality surrounding Messiah, surrounding redemption. Isaac was a type of Christ, the son of laughter who experienced a miraculous birth, who was bound and was being prepared to be offered as a sacrifice. And yet the Lord intervened. And now the type switches and the ram in the thicket is the substitute. That ram becomes the type of Christ dying in Isaac's place. The priests were called copy and shadow of heavenly things. That is, the whole priesthood, in a sense, was a type pointing to the messianic ministry. So I I agree with those who say that that Melchizedek was a type of Christ, but not an actual appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. Now, there were those in throughout Judaism, and including the first century, that thought that Melchizedek might have been an angel. He might have been a heavenly supernatural being, which is why it says he lives and so forth. Uh, that's entirely possible. But I do think that Hebrews makes a distinction between Jesus and Melchizedek. I think there's a distinction there. Ultimately, it doesn't really matter. Ultimately, that's not the most important thing, where we land on that question. Without question, 
Melchizedek is presented to us as superior to Abraham, to all of Abraham's descendants, to the Levitical priesthood, and yet he's not the main character. He's a type pointing us to Jesus. And because Melchizedek is superior, so too is the Lord Jesus. The priestly order of Melchizedek, which preceded the Old Testament law and preceded the Levitical priesthood, it was superior to the Levitical priesthood. And because Jesus is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, his priesthood is clearly superior to that of the Old Testament Levitical priest. That's the argument. And that is supremely important. This once-for-all priest who abides forever made a once-for-all sacrifice that pays for all of the sins of all of those who would ever put their trust in him. And his sacrifice was clearly superior to all the blood of bulls and sheep and goats. And I want to show you where we're going. Where is the author of Hebrews taking us? Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10, if you would. Just a page over in most of your Bibles. Hebrews 10, verse 1. And we're going we're gonna to dive into this pretty deeply in a few weeks. But verse 1, we read, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, again, the types, the shadows, It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Those sacrifices of the Levitical priests don't save. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Whatever the Levitical priests were doing, it wasn't working, if their only function was to take away sins. Now, their only function wasn't to take away sins. It was a point forward to the one true priest and the one real sacrifice, the Lord Jesus. And we read about him in verse 9 and following. In verse 9, it says, behold, I've come to do your will. He does away with the first, that is that original priesthood, in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And again, this was written before the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. And so the priestly services were continuing. So he writes, every priest stands daily at a service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he's perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. His priesthood, after the order of Melchizedek, is superior. His sacrifice is superior. And I don't think there's anybody here who's tempted to abandon Christianity and pursue Judaism. All right? Uh, the Jewish priest, the sacrificial system, that, that doesn't even exist any longer. But that first century, those first century Jewish believers did face quite a bit of pressure. The heavy cost of discipleship was weighing many of them down. There were societal pressures, come back to the fold. There was most likely, in many cases, family pressure, come back to the fold. And Hebrews is addressing that pressure and saying, Christ is superior. Why would you go anywhere else? The hope that we have in Christ is an anchor for our souls. He alone can take away sins. He alone can give 
life. So as we've traced the message of Hebrews, we see that Jesus is superior to angels. He's superior to Moses. He's superior to Abraham. He's superior to the Levitical priests. And we'll see as we go forward that his sacrifice is superior to all the Old Testament sacrificial system of bulls and sheeps and goats. Only Jesus' sacrifice can take away our sins. That's the message that we must hold fast with all our being. Melchizedek was a, was a mysterious character. And even after we finish studying this chapter, there's still going to be questions that remain about Melchizedek. He's still mysterious to an extent, but there's nothing, there's no mystery about the Lord Jesus. He is the Son of God, born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, never sinned once, fulfilled the law of God, took our sins upon himself. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf in our place so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Nothing mysterious about that. And even as those Levitical priests were, as it were, in the loins of Abraham, so whatever Abraham did, figuratively speaking, they did. If you're a Christian, we are in Christ. So whatever Jesus did, figuratively speaking, or by virtue of our union with Christ, we did. So where he accomplished a perfect righteousness, the benefits of that perfect righteousness come to us. And we are rewarded by God as if we had lived that perfect life only Christ could live. And so we say with Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, we're blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ.